Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast. All good things come to an end, and so, alas, does Sarah Bennett's reading for the Book Collector of Anne Baer's Bibliovignettes. The last in the series are Unexpected Resemblances, Stoning Charlotte Bronte, and The Corpse in the Piano. Unexpected Resemblances, Bibliovignettes 13, by Anne Bayer. Many decades ago, I saw in a London underground train, on an evening paper that the man opposite was reading, a photograph of a small boy of four or five years old. He was in profile, somewhat piggy features, with hair brushed forward over his forehead and ears. It reminded me of some portrait, and I was wondering whose, when I remembered it was one of Sir Thomas Lawrence's portraits, in profile, of the Prince Regent, later George IV, as a young man. The same brushed forward hair, the same piggy expression. Later that day, I saw in another copy of the evening paper that the photograph of the little boy was Prince Charles, the Prince Regent's great-great-great-great-great-nephew. I have long been familiar with a photograph of a drawing by Max Beerbohm, of my grandfather Arthur Sidgwick, done when Max was a student at Oxford attending my grandfather's lectures. He is drawn clutching a book, skipping over Mount Parnassus, wearing one of those high hats, half bowler, half top, his hair and beard floating out. It is labelled Mr Sidrick as represented in Corpus Col. And to one side is written, O formos inex nimium necredi libilius non sic Parnassum tangier tu poteris. Roughly translated, O handsome old man, don't believe too much in books, this is not the way in which you will touch Parnassus. The original of the drawing is in the Bodleian Library. Again, a few years ago, when my nephew Ralph Sidgwick, aged about eight, was playing with my stepson at my house and found among his toys a false beard, which he clipped over his ears, and an odd felt hat of my husband's, which he punched up the crease in and put on too, I wondered whom he resembled. Then I recognised his likeness to the old drawing of his great-grandfather, the same slope of the eyes, the same slightly aquiline nose. Perhaps many of us, unknowing, have as children a fleeting resemblance to an ancestor, but most of us have ancestors who never got painted by Lawrence or drawn by Max Beerbohm. Stoning Charlotte Bronte Bibliovignettes 14 by Anne Bayer In her biography of Charlotte Bronte, Elizabeth Gaskell describes what Charlotte told her about her experiences in 1839 when she was sent as a governess to a Yorkshire family. Mrs Gaskell writes, I intend carefully to abstain from introducing the names of any living people respecting whom I may have to tell unpleasant truths or to quote severe remarks from Miss Bronte's letters. And then goes on to detail the humiliating, but probably not unusual, treatment Charlotte endured from her employers. No names were mentioned. In the plentiful notes to the Penguin edition of this biography, edited by Alan Shelston, 1975, Mrs Gaskell's discretion is ignored, and it is disclosed that these unpleasant people were a Mr and Mrs John Benson Sidgwick. They lived in Stone Gap House, near Skipton. He was a cotton manufacturer, probably exploiting children in his mill. It was Mrs Benson Sidgwick who regarded Charlotte as a servant. Not only did Charlotte have the responsibility of looking after the children, but also whatever other jobs, such as domestic sewing, that were given to her. 
The particular event described was when Mr and Mrs Benson Sidgwick went away for a day and had left Charlotte in charge of the children, especially a little boy of three or four, whom she was to keep from going into the stable yard. As soon as the parents had left, this little boy, encouraged by his brother of eight or nine, went into the stable yard. Charlotte followed them and remonstrated with them, so the boy started to throw stones at her, one hitting her on the temple, drawing blood. This must have alarmed the children, and they agreed to follow her back to the house. Next day, Mrs Benson Sidgwick, in the presence of the children, seeing the wound on Charlotte's face, asked her what had happened. The children were obviously very fearful of what her reply might be, but Charlotte only said, It was an accident, ma'am. From then onwards, the children honoured Charlotte for not telling tales, and she gained influence over them, and even their affection. So much so that one day at dinner, the little boy who had stoned her put his hand in hers and said he loved her. His mother exclaimed in horror, Love a governess? I have seen Stone Gap House, a large imposing building approached by a wide drive with a big garden sloping down behind it. The stable yard, now a busy farmyard, was close to the house. Many decades later, my aunt Margie Sidgwick told me that at some unknown date, but probably in the 1920s, a very old man called on her at her house in Oxford, claiming cousinship, his surname being Benson Sidgwick. The Bensons and the Sidgwicks, both Yorkshire families, frequently intermarried, which makes family trees complicated. But through strangers, the two were close cousins, first cousins once removed, his father and her grandfather having been brothers. Realising he was in an Oxford house where literature was valued, he admitted that his only connection to English literature was that he had once thrown a stone at Charlotte Bronte and hit her. The Corpse and the Piano Bibliovignettes 15 by Anne Bayer Mrs Louise Smith was a telephonist at the New Statesman's office in London for many years. A middle-aged cockney of not much education, a Roman Catholic by tradition, with an excellent memory for figures, and oblivious to much that surrounded her. She had a liking for port, and very easily got drunk. Anthony Howard told me that he was ordered to take charge of her on the annual Christmas outings, usually a musical for the New Statesman's staff. She once showed me a calendar someone had sent her, with reproductions of old master paintings for each month. One was Masaccio's The Expulsion of Adam and Eve from Eden in Florence. She regarded it as an authentic photograph of a recent event. I didn't think that Eve looked like that, did you? She said to me. In those days in offices, everyone had a telephone on their desk. You lifted the receiver and Mrs Smith, in her little office with a large dashboard and lots of wires in front of her, would ask you what number you wanted and then she dialed it. And when that person answered, she put you through. It was the same procedure if you wanted to speak to someone else in the same office. Ganymede Gallery, where I worked, was in the same building as the New Statesman and shared with it the postal service, the coffee machines and the telephone service. Mrs Smith's little office was at the end of a corridor off which were the offices of the editors and the managers of various departments of the New Statesman. Her office had a glass door so she could see down the corridor and monitor the movements of the staff. Sorry, dear, Mr Martin's red light's on. I can't put any calls through to him yet. Or, sorry, dear, Mr Mackenzie's just popped into the gents. Oh, no, he's come out. Hold on a second. 
she did not care who else waiting for a number overheard such details. Most of the time she was kept busy, with constant incoming calls, especially on Thursdays preceding the New Statesman's publishing day on Fridays. But there were times when no one wanted to telephone and she got bored. On one such occasion, she rang me up in Ganymede Gallery. Oh, Miss Sidgwick, I'm so bored. No one's telephoning. Have you got a book you could lend me? It so happened I had in my desk a copy of R.L. Stevenson and Lloyd Osborne's The Wrong Box. This was before it was made into a film and became famous. I was doubtful if its involved rambling sentences and discursive tone were within her comprehension, but I lent it to her, and I was wrong. She was highly entertained, and in the following weeks often enthusiastically commented on the book whenever I asked for a number. About this time in the New Statesman's pages, Khrushchev and Bertrand Russell were conducting a public correspondence of international importance, and the Cuban Missile Crisis was looming. The whole world was temporarily watching the New Statesman. I was pretty sure, as probably many other anxious people were, that their offices were being closely watched by the Soviet embassy in London, and that all their telephone calls were being monitored. Not that Mrs Smith bothered about such possibilities. I might lift my office telephone and ask her to get me, e.g. the Tate Gallery. Right here, dear. Ooh, when they found the corpse in the piano. Did I laugh? Or, he shouldn't have taken a hammer to the sculpture. What a scream! I wondered what the earnest Russians selected for their knowledge of English, carefully listening in and recording the subversive English press, would make of these comments. Is there any record in the archives in the Kremlin? That was Sarah Bennett reading the last of Anne Baer's Bibliovignettes. If you enjoyed this Book Collector podcast, you can find many more on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or via our website. Why not check out our Great Collectors playlist for more podcasts featuring the biggest names in book collecting and bibliography. Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today. Finally, if you would like to sponsor one of our future podcasts, do please get in touch at editor at thebookcollector.co.uk. Thank you.